0: You're listening to the Australian Family and Fertility Law Podcast. Here's your host, Stephen Page.
1: Oh, g'day, uh, my name is Stephen Page and I'm just welcoming you to my podcast, Australian Family and Fertility Law Podcast. My first guest today is Rich Vaughan, uh, who is a dear friend of mine and colleague and is also practising as one of America's leading fertility lawyers. You would have heard him recently on our webinar about Australian intended parents going to the United States. Welcome Rich.
0: Thank you, Steve. Good to be here.
1: Now tell us about how you came to do art law or for those who don't know what that means, that means to do with surrogacy and fertility.
0: Well, I suppose we should uh, start at the beginning. So on October 24th, 1968, I was born. No, just kidding. I, I, I won't <laughs> bore you with the full story. This is yeah, be a long yeah, story. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, there's a couple of different starting points, but the most important one, I think, is um, you know, I went through surrogacy myself with my husband, and we were at the very beginning stages doing our research, etc. and of course, we're advised to speak to a lawyer uh, about what we would need to go through and what we would need to prepare for. And um, so we did. We spoke to a lawyer, and um, I found it. Incredibly fascinating. I was a lawyer myself at the time, still am, and um, you know I I was just really intrigued by what I was hearing about the whole process. So I actually called our lawyer the next day and I said, "What's it like to practice in this area?" And it was right time, right place. I had been working. Um, as in-house counsel for a medical device technology company for, for several years. And as most startup companies do, they end up losing their funding. You know, so they lost their funding for me. and I had a good long window of time to look for something new and, and meaningful. And I thought, gosh, what better way to do something meaningful than to help other people build families? And that was it right there. I was hooked. And um, it happened to be right time, right place. And he brought me on. And so while I was going through my surrogacy, I was also learning surrogacy law firsthand uh, from both sides uh, of the contract, as they say.
1: It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? That my journey was the opposite in the sense that I was doing surrogacy law since uh, probably close to before you were born. That's not much of an exaggeration, Um, but certainly a long time ago. And and then actually only undertaking my surrogacy journey uh, at the end. Uh, or the relative end of, of, of the process, whereas yours um, was at the beginning. But it's a real eye-opener, isn't it? When, when you do your own surrogacy journey and then, and then uh, have such delights as uh, the clinic saying, oh, that'll be $3,000 thanks, <laughs> uh, and you immediately wonder, have I got that on my credit card?
0: <laughs> that's a daily uh, occurrence. And,
1: yes, that's great. It's one of those, you know, gulp moments, isn't it? That you go, oh, I hope I can afford this. I hope we can afford this, um, and I hope this is all all worth it.
0: And um, your
1: journey, your surrogacy journey. How how did your journey go?
0: Well, um, it was precisely because of the costs that um, our journey. Uh, took a long pause at the beginning, and we basically talked about wanting to have kids together early on in the relationship, and we found out how much it cost, and we knew we needed to save up, so we spent a few years saving up and researching and then finally jumping in. Um, several years later. Um, then then we um, we found our way to a lawyer, as I mentioned, and then we found our way to a surrogacy agency and a doctor and eventually an egg donor agency as well and uh, started the long the long process of getting there. It took uh, about eighteen 20 months, actually, for us from start to finish. Um, so it was a good,
1: you know. You had a well, – well, it took longer than that because you had to save up. And – that, that's one of those, I think that's what you've illustrated is what often happens. You know, I've, I've, how many times have I heard it uh, said that surrogacy is only for rich people, um, exploiting poor, poor people? And uh, certainly what I see is that often it's intended parents relying on the bank of mum and dad or, or going to the bank to obtain a loan or as happened in the past in Australia, accessing the superannuation retirement savings. Uh, or doing what you you did, and that's save, 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 save.
0: Yeah, we saved, and um, we actually took a second mortgage out on the house to, to get some extra funds, and, you know, quite, um, uh, I don't know, how you want to say it dramatically or, or whatnot, but a friend of mine had passed, and I was one of the beneficiaries in his life insurance policy, and that's actually what gave us the, the little edge to say, hey, okay, I guess we have some extra money here now. Um, so it was a, bit, a little bittersweet, but, you know, I always think of him when I think of how we got our whole process started because it was because of his passing, you know, that we were able to create oh, more life. That's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah quite, quite meaningful, very, very special.
1: And how old are your kids now?
0: <laughs> our kids are um, – tw- uh, they've just crossed the 12-and-a-half line so they're well on their way to puberty and preteen everything. Uh, they will be 13 in in August. so how
1: that, how they grow it's uh, it, it's but you never forget how they're created.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's part of uh, our story, uh, it's part of their story. They know that that's part of their story. They're proud of it. They understand it. For the most part, they're still trying to figure out the egg donor piece. They still ask questions where I'm like, oh, OK, yeah, you don't fully understand this yet. But it, it, their understanding grows over time. But it's definitely part of their story. And we still keep in touch with our surrogate You know, about once or twice a year. We will get an email uh, from her with pictures of her kids. And we'll send her an email with pictures of our kids, you know, either at you know, birthdays or the holidays, that kind of thing.
1: I saw a story in this morning's Sydney Morning Herald uh, with a with a woman who said that she was conceived through anonymous sperm donation, and said that with um, straight couples, uh, it was something like ninety percent of the time they didn't disclose to um, the child about where the where the child had come from. Well, that's not the That's not the same with gay couples, is it? There's got to be disclosure.
0: Yeah, there's no avoiding the topic. Um, (laughs) You know, the first couple of years or so, they have zero clue. But eventually they start going to daycare and they see, you know, other people's mommies and daddies picking them up at the end of the day. And eventually they're like, do we have a mommy and I'm like, well, no, you have two daddies. And they explain that families come in all shapes and sizes, with single parents, same sex parents, heterosexual parents, etc. Um, and so they, they have an early appreciation uh, for the fact that their family is different. Uh, they don't quite understand at that age, um, how babies come about, but you know, in a few years they start to get a, an appreciation for that, and then we we have the surrogacy talk, and talk about how uh, we basically started off saying, hey, it was a friend of ours that helped us. We didn't get into any details or contracts or costs oh, cool. and fees, and but we you know, a friend of ours helped us, and she was very generous and, and helped carry us carry you, and um, and then the, the story just grows over time, and I think it's really important to to be completely honest. With the children, it's important for them to know how they came to be, where they came from, you know who what their makeup is. And um you know for us, our, our egg donor as well was completely open. We had a fully known and open contract with full names so that you know someday if our children are interested, they have the ability to reach out to her and um, find out more.
1: And of course the reality today is that anonymity is really dead with the rise of databases like ancestry.com, 23me.com, that as soon as someone uh, puts in a request for a test, then those databases keep vacuuming up that information and sooner or later, uh, you'll be able to track the person down without a doubt.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. We discuss this a lot with our clients these days and uh, more and more people are really, Welcoming with open arms, you know, open arrangements or semi-open arrangements for the sake of the child, uh, because there really is no guarantee of anonymity. So, and and, and just
1: for just for to explain to our Australian uh, listeners, semi semi open, as you've described it, is what we have in Australia, namely that the donor isn't known, but the child can find out after the age of eighteen if they want it, who, who the donor is.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and for us here in the US, it, it means that there's some mechanism for communication that's made a part of the arrangement, whether it's through a uh, donor sibling registry uh, or an anonymous email, there's some contact possible. Even before the child turns 18, there's some a way of the parties communicating with each other.
1: And in the midst of this, when you decided to Change your career from medical devices to uh, helping people have kids. Uh, you somehow uh, morphed uh, into this super lawyer, uh, <laughs> who's and that sounds that sounds like you you stand astride buildings, but but the reality is that you are you know you are recognised around the world for your expertise, uh, particularly with surrogacy, but certainly fertility generally, uh, and. Tell us about the journey, about how that happened when when you started off into this journey because uh, you were becoming a dad and then discovered that, or I presume, that you actually like what you were doing.
0: Yeah, I absolutely love what I do and I think it, that's obviously an important part to anyone's success is really being passionate about what you do. Um, I... I I had an unusual trajectory in in some ways. For many lawyers in this space, they practice other areas of family law and they find their way into assisted reproduction. And so it's not the the sole focus of their practice, but I was hired into an already successful practice. Um, So from day one, all I've ever done in this field was you know, 100% assisted reproduction. And at the time I joined the firm, they were looking to create a national law firm. And I had experience with creating national networks and and national uh, sales distribution networks for the prior medical device company that I'd worked for. So it was a good fit for me. This is why it was right time, right place. And in doing this for the law firm, I I created relationships with attorneys in each state around the U.S., um, Creating of counsel relationships between lawyers practicing um, in that state, and they would, you know, be our of counsel. Um, and as part of that, and, and just go ahead. And just, yeah.
1: and just so to hear about that. Your your uh, network of, as you say, of counsel uh, is unparalleled. No, no one else um, in in this field has that network of, of colleagues that you work with.
0: Uh, day in day out uh, absolutely uh, it, it takes a lot of time and effort and resources to to build that network and you know we had the ability to do that at the time which was 2006 and um you know i would want go out and personally interview and talk to these attorneys and make sure they were a good fit that they understood that we were about all families you know so single people same-sex couples etc and we needed their support in, in ways that um you know, a lot of other family lawyers at the time weren't able to provide. So handpicking these folks and then learning the law in each of these states, it almost became sort of a natural jump to then get involved with the American Bar Association and then eventually become the chair of the American Bar Association Assisted Reproduction Committee, uh, which I'm
1: just going to stop stop you there and just say, you know, I think one of the things that Australians don't often don't understand is that there's not one system of law to do with surrogacy or egg donation in the U.S., is there?
0: No, no, in fact, uh, assisted reproduction law is not a matter of federal law in the U.S., it does change Uh, from state to state. And you have to be aware of, and um, including into your contracts and other work, the law of each relevant state that touches that transaction. So it it is definitely a state by state thing. And it's been evolving in the US uh, for over 30 years now. Even today, um, the laws are drastically different from one state to the next.
1: And and so we're looking at a grand title of Fifty states plus the District of Columbia, so we've got fifty-one states, all all with different systems, and you somehow have got your head around all of those.
0: Uh, yeah, um, had had to. It was part of the job, and um, you know, one of the things that we do when we meet with with new prospective intended parents who are looking at surrogacy in the U.S., we want to assess based on their particular situation, what states in the U.S. are legally suitable for them. So we had to get a a good understanding of the law uh, in each state. And so as as that research and education, self-education progressed, it became um, kind of a nice natural jumping point to chair the American Bar Association Assisted Reproduction Committee. And in doing so, I got to meet everybody else in the field, not just the of councils that we had selected to be part of our, our network. Um, and then, you know, our, our business naturally includes intended parents from many other countries around the world. So why not develop a network of international attorneys as well? So I've, I've just sort of made it my business to meet everybody as, as much as I can. And I, I've had the good pleasure and fortune of working with many people from all over the world and most of the attorneys all across the US who who work in this space.
1: Now one of the the achievements that Mm. happened when you chaired the uh, ART committee of the American Bar Association was to develop a policy about a proposed Hague surrogacy convention And, and of course now I'm going to chip you because I remember back in 2014, you said to me, "Well, Stephen, you're in charge of it. You've got to come to this conference in Stowe, Vermont." And I and I I whinged about it because uh, I said that's about as far away in the world as as it is to get from where I am. And uh, I said, "Can't can't Bruce do it?" At, at our colleague who was just down the road, and he said, "No, no, you remember this. You're in charge. You've got to come." <laughs>
0: yeah. And I
1: said don't you understand uh, you know, how far it is and, and, and my finances and everything. So why can't, why can't we just do it remotely? And you said, no, no, no. Um, no, you've got to do it in person uh, for a 20 minute presentation, which as we discovered uh, the afternoon of, of the occasion at Stowe Vermont, it was two minutes. Remember that, how it was cut down and, and suddenly we had to uh, cut our cloth uh, to fit to, to fit the circumstances, um, but it was certainly uh, that that was an extraordinary experience to have to travel to the other side of the world and present to how many how many are on the family law section committee about 30, 30 attorneys thereabouts
0: uh, you mean on the council yeah about thirty yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, and uh, then get get them to give the the okay for it to to proceed after that
0: yeah so so what you're referring to is that, you know at the family law section you know part of our job is not only to educate attorneys and provide continuing legal education conferences but to also assess what issues in assisted reproduction law need to be addressed perhaps at a higher level on a policy level by the american bar association and when we pick an issue that needs to be addressed and work on it we develop a, a basically a white paper, a research paper, and then we we make a suggestion uh, about what the ABA, the American Bar Association policy, should be. So we start with uh, the white paper and we present it to the family law section, which is what you came to Stowe, Vermont, to do. And then once we get the family law section's approval, then we um, send it out to all the other interested sections of the American Bar Association and other legal organizations. And then and, get, and let's
1: just stop you there. And who knew there was so many?
0: <laughs> it's politics as usual. Um, yeah, politics as usual. So, yeah, so we get a feedback from everybody else uh, that could be interested in the topic. And then once we've really heard everyone's voice, then we present it to the ABA to be approved as an ABA resolution, which eventually was done. We did get the ABA's uh, imprimatur on it and they approved it and it became official policy from the ABA to the US State Department um, in terms of what The Hague was looking at with regard to perhaps regulating surrogacy on an international level. And you were a big part of that. So we were super thankful for all of your work on that.
1: Yeah, Thank you. And uh, let's be clear when we talk about the Hague this is the Hague conference on private international law the, the place that comes up with Hague conventions and Australia and the United States amongst other countries are, are members of of this of this conference
0: right right
1: a- and uh, a- and the number uh, uh, let's let's put some numbers on it how many attorneys are members of the American Bar Association
0: so there are over 400,000 members of the American Bar Association. So that's a lot of people's opinions to somehow factor in. Uh, so that's why there's such a, a, a uh, major process to go through to get the approval of the ABA on something on, on something of this of this nature.
1: But this wasn't the only policy that you developed while you were chair. Uh, there are other policies, for example, uniform legislation.
0: Yes, so um, a couple of the uniform uh, pieces of legislation that we were able to pass through during my, my tenure were the ABA American Bar Association Model Act governing assisted reproduction. Um, this had been passed previously in 2008, but that bill took 17 years to to get passed from start to finish. And by the time it was passed, it was already out of date. And so uh, I was working on an update to that legislation. Uh, and then we- Se-
1: seventeen years, you can hear the crickets. <laughs> I think by the time that it finally got there, I think, I think watching, watching um, grass grow is, is certainly a lot quicker.
0: <laughs> Indeed, yeah, but it was in severe need of an update uh, from the time it was passed, and we worked on it. And even then, uh, during my tenure, it took um, uh, it even proceeded when I started as chair. So that project took about ten so, years. You don't get paid for that. No, not at all, <laughs> it's all, this comes out of your it's all volunteer. The of your heart. yes, all the, all, all the traveling, all the the, the the lobbying for these things, all the work that's involved, all the time, the hours, it's all um, you know, pro bono, essentially.
1: And this isn't something that you could sheet back to your clients, the clients don't pay for it, that comes out of, out of your hip pocket that's, and out of your time.
0: That's correct. Yeah, but it's important. Yeah. It's important work, and uh, I'm very passionate about this. I'm very passionate about making, um, you know, assisted reproduction technology accessible to more people, making it safe for everyone involved. Um, you know, it, it's it's definitely um, a passion project. So,
1: and it's it, when one looks at surrogacy agencies, the news just came out a couple of days ago that. Uh, the former owner of a surrogacy agency on the East Coast uh, has been jailed?
0: Well, I would say, first of all, just be aware that agencies by and large are not licensed. Um, and so be aware that, of course, anyone can put up a good website. So don't just believe what you see on the internet, uh, double check it, get get references from uh, friends or family who've been through this process get references from your IVF clinic, get references from the attorney that you work with, and eventually you may see some of the same agency names pop up on multiple different lists and you'll know that's a way to narrow it down. There are several hundred agencies in the US, so it's, it's, a, it's a massive project to try to narrow it down, but go with the people you know first, and start with those folks especially the credentialed professionals who can give you qualified referrals that's a great way to to start. Sure.
1: And and in your work with thousands of clients who've become parents through surrogacy and and egg donation you've won some awards. So tell us about the awards that
0: you've received. Oh, I don't even remember. <laughs> The awards aren't important to me. It's nice to get them. But um, gosh, I think I got one from the ABA. Uh, I think the the family law chair uh, gave me an award, just a recognition for work done. Um, I believe I received an award from the Family Equality Council and then also from the American Fertility Association, which later changed their name to Path to Parenthood. There might be one more. (laughs) So Family Equality Council uh, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to um, ensuring equality for all families uh, that are either headed by LGBT parents or may have LGBT uh children and it it's there to help promote family building as well as family support so um, in terms of the support it's all kinds of support um, from uh, just educational resources and access to funding access but on the family building side they promote um, family building through all forms including adoption um, fostering and surrogacy and assisted reproduction
1: Well, as you were saying before, families come in all shapes and sizes and how people are conceived, uh, their journey uh, is unique uh, to themselves. And you were talking about uh, openness and honesty with your children. I I think the story that resonates the most with me is the uh, woman who was the first Australian to be born through both surrogacy and IVF in Australia. And she was recounting when she was at school and being picked on by by this um, boy in the schoolyard about uh, well how did you come about you came about through a test tube and she said now let me get this right you came about because your parents had sex at which at which point all the kids <laughs> of course had a similar reaction because we never want to never want to talk about our parents having sex. But I, I thought that she got it right because it, it is a unique journey, and it is valuable. And she was proud about where she came from, uh,
0: and and she should be. Uh, we uh, try to instill that in our children as well, without you know beating them over the head with it. But you know, it it this process involves so much purpose, so much planning, um, so much saving. You don't become. Uh, you know, you don't have your children accidentally through this process, so you save and, and work for, for a long time to make this happen. So we often say that the children of, of these types of arrangements are some of the most loved because of everything the parents have gone through to make it happen.
1: Wow. Well, with those last words of wisdom from you, thank you for your time today, Rich. That, that That's awesome stuff.
0: My pleasure. My pleasure. Always a pleasure to see you, Stephen.
1: Thanks, Rich. And you're listening to the Australian Family and Fertility Law Podcast. Thank you for joining.
0: Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate reaching out to Stephen at